traditional medicine is mostly about promoting health and nourishing and balancing and preventing people from getting sick. And that's what tonics really do. There's actually a saying in Chinese medicine that I love, which is waiting until you're sick to start taking medicine. It's like digging a well when you're thirsty. When people connect with the plants in a really visceral way, by smelling them, by tasting them, by drinking them as tea or taking them as tincture, they start to go walk in the woods or even a park or even their front yard and start seeing with different eyes and realizing that we are not just alone in the world. We're not just these individual encapsulated separate beings that we're all connected. You're listening to Plant Love Radio, episode number 78. Welcome to Plant Love Radio, a place where you'll discover how to create a balanced, vibrant, and resilient life through the wonders of herbal medicine. I'm your host, Lana Camille, a college professor, drug information pharmacist, and an herbalist. You'll love my amazing guests, herbal teachers, clinicians, medicine makers, growers, and artists. Thank you for joining me on this adventure. Let's get the show started. Hello, friends. I hope you're doing well. In today's interview, I am speaking with a North Carolina herbalist, Corey Pine Shane. Corey Pine is a director of the Blue Ridge School of Herbal Medicine in Asheville, North Carolina. He spent over 25 years teaching and helping clients by artfully blending Chinese and Western herbal traditions. While he does this, he focuses on local plants. As a seasonal wildcrafter, he has extensive knowledge of wild plants as well as medicine making, which he has put into his forthcoming book, Southeast Medicinal Plants, and we will talk a little bit about it during our conversation. He's also the author of an ebook, Herbs for Pain. Corey Pine has taught at many national herb conferences and is a professional member of the American Herbalist Guild. During today's conversation, we are discussing how to bridge worlds, people, cultures, and plants to help each one of us to become stronger, more connected, and healthy. I'm excited to talk about Corey Pine's three categories of tonics and five of his favorite plants for you to try. As a gift for you, I have created a summary of five of Corey Pine's favorite tonics. You can find the summary as well as all the links and resources mentioned in today's episode in the show notes at plantloveradio.com slash 78. This episode is brought to you by Mountain Rose Herbs. Think a candy store for an herbalist and also one of my favorite herbal companies. Whether you are a budding herbalist or an established practitioner, Mountain Rose Herbs offers the highest quality organically grown herbs, spices, teas, essential oils, and botanical goods. To learn more about the company and explore their amazing collection, please head over to plantloveradio.com slash mountainroseherbs. And now let's get to our conversation. 
Hello, Corbine. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Doing well. How are you doing today? I'm well, thank you. I'm excited to connect with you today to learn more about you, your herbal path. We connected about a year and a half ago, and time does fly by. But as we begin this conversation, I wanted to ask you to talk a little bit about yourself, to share with our audience how you got started, why herbal medicine, and why it had such a pull on you early on in your life. Right. I often joke that I got into herbal medicine because I met an herbalist. But the, the truth is, I grew up in kind of the suburbs slash country where as a kid, I'd spend a lot of time in the woods. I just really felt at home in the woods. I really enjoyed exploring and playing. And then I learned that by learning the plants, I could snack. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> so you might say that low blood sugar was the cause of my desire to learn about plants. I understand. I started oh, there's things out here I can eat. And so I started learning those things and what plants I could eat. And then I kind of forgot about it in high school. But yeah, when I was about 19, I met this herbalist named Seven Song. I was going to school in Ithaca, New York, at Ithaca College. And I just kind of randomly met this guy. Growing up in the suburbs uh, outside of Philadelphia, it was just so different than anybody I'd ever met before. That I was very intrigued. And I started going out to his cabin in the woods and visiting him out there. And and I wasn't really intending to study herbal medicine. And I would come over and he'd be like, doing stuff like, what are you doing? He's like, oh, I'm chopping some burdock root. You want to help? Like, sure. And so I'd sit there and just start chopping roots with him. And I'd say, so what is this good for? And we'd start talking about the plants or we'd go for a walk and he'd point out plants to me. And I just started getting more and more curious. So he ended up becoming my herb teacher. I ended up going to his school years later. But I kind of studied herbalism as a hobby, and it was, it was like my cute hobby. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but then I graduated from college, and I decided to go explore around the West. What did you study, I'm by the way? I, I was an English okay. major, writing minor, and religion minor. Okay. So I graduated college, and I spent like six months traveling around the Northwest, Originally, I was just going to move to Seattle because it was the early 90s and Seattle was really hip and cool. Kurt Cobain was still alive. Grunge was really cool and Seattle was hip. But I ended up just kind of traveling around and kind of being houseless for a while, like living in the woods or like sleeping on porches and just kind of roaming around, being a bit of a road dog. And I found that in that place where I was hanging out with people who were homeless, sometimes not by choice, like I kind of was, and people who were poor, people who didn't have access to medicine, that all of a sudden this, what I was thinking of as like this cute hobby of plant medicine became almost like a life and death thing where I could like really be camped out in the woods and someone would have a bad infection. And I could go and dig up some Oregon grape root, boil up some tea over the fire and like give it to them and I would see them get better. Mm -hmm. or pick some mullen leaves and throw that in there. And that would help with some of their congestion in their lungs. And at that point, that's where the rubber really hit the road for me. It was mm -hmm. less theoretical and more like, wow, this stuff is actually free. It's accessible. And it really makes changes in people. 
Before then, it was kind of more like this fancy alternative medicine. And then it became this really applied medicine. Oh, this is something that people need. Right. And can easily make if they had the knowledge to just do it. So when I moved back to Ithaca, this would have been 1993, I, I started taking every class that Seven Song offered to the public. And then in 94, he opened up an herb school and I signed up. I was in his first class. Okay. And yeah, I really did not expect to start an herb school. Mm-hmm. I didn't even expect like really start a practice. I was just halfway through herb school and someone said, so what are you going to do when you graduate? And I thought, I don't know, I guess I'll help people. I'll see clients. So I graduated and I just started seeing clients and helping out my friends and my community. And I just felt more and more like, wow, this is something that's really important. This is something that people need to know. This medicine that's all around us, that's easy to access and has this powerful ability to heal us. And so eventually I I started an herb school. We'll talk more about your herb school because I definitely want our audience to hear more about it, about your offerings and things of that type. But before we do, I want to talk about a couple of other subjects. So when we were preparing for this conversation, many of the topics that came up were somehow connected to bridging different worlds. So how herbalists bridge mainstream and holistic medicine from your perspective? Right. Because holistic medicine is such a a blanket term. I I don't really know any better term, right? There is alternative medicine, complementary medicine, holistic medicines. Until we come up with a better term, I just use holistic medicine as a placeholder. (laughs) Sure. Because it covers everything from Reiki to energy medicine to Mayan abdominal massage to spiritual bathing. And herbal medicine has this connection to all those things. It can be energetic. It can be deep, it can be spiritual, but we can also talk about the plants in a uh, chemical way. We can talk about what chemicals are in them. We can talk about the physiology of how those plants affect our body. And in that way, I think we really bridge what people often like call like more woo type stuff with the more mainstream medicine way of looking at the body. What's fascinating is that mainstream medicine is actually validating some of these herbal and or holistic principles. For example, the gut biome, the bacteria in our gut, which herbalists and holistic practitioners have been saying, oh, this is really important. We should pay attention to this Mm -hmm. for years. All of a sudden in the past five years, mainstream medicine is like, oh yeah, it really is important. And it's actually even more important than you herbalists were even saying, because look, it does all this too. So maybe that's what I find so fascinating, the way you can talk about plants in so many different languages. You can talk about the chemistry of the plant and the pharmacy of the plant, and that is a really valid language, but it is only one language. Let's say American ginseng, Panax clinkifolius, has ginsenosides, which are adaptogens. They seem to work on the limbic system of the brain to help reduce our stress response. So we can experience more external stress with having less of an internal reaction. But we could also say that it is a chi tonic. Mm-hmm. And because it's a chi tonic doesn't mean that it's also not an adaptogen. Both things can be true. We could use language like anti-inflammatory, or we could use language like cooling, or we could use language like pitta reducing in like Ayurveda terms. 
And all those are true. They're just different maps of the same terrain. The map is not the territory, as one of my teachers, Michael Moore, would always say, but the map is an interpretation. Each interpretation gives you something about what's going on. I think herbalists can have the language to talk to medical doctors and say like, oh yeah, this St. John's work does work on specific liver enzymes that might stimulate breakdown of these drugs. So maybe we shouldn't use this herb with this drug. Or herbalists can talk to more holistic practitioners and say, oh, St. John's wort blooms on St. John's Day, which is one of the longest days of the year, the most sunlight. It has this beautiful yellow color. And St. John's wort is like the, the plant of the sun. It really brings the sunshine in when people have like seasonal affective disorder, or even just like in a dark place, this plant that blooms on St. John's Day, like pretty much summer solstice, just a few days off of summer solstice, and captures that beautiful sunlight, can bring the sunlight in when we're going through dark times. I love how herbalists can like talk both of those worlds. And that's one of the things that's really fascinating for me. It truly is. I, I like that multifaceted approach to herbal medicine. And you mentioned just a couple of minutes ago, ginseng and how it's a chi tonic made me think about the other bridge we discussed earlier. So bridging different cultures, right? So if you have a practitioner that is working with plants who has understanding of Ayurveda and traditional Chinese medicine and perhaps Western herbalism, that plants also allow them to bridge these different cultures. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. And it's fun too, because I was just listening to your uh, podcast with Phyllis Light, talking about bridging the folk tradition of Southern medicine with modern medicine. But in a lot of ways, medicine is a reflection of the, the culture that it comes out of, just like Western medicine, which we can bust on it all we want, but there's a lot of really amazing things about Western medicine. And there's a lot of failures of Western medicine, which we can acknowledge and address with herbal medicine. But there's a lot of things Western medicine can do that herbalists can't necessarily. And that's kind of an outgrowth of this whole Western mindset. In the words of Descartes, take apart the universe like a clock and look at the individual pieces mm -hmm. has led to some fantastic scientific achievements. But that way of looking at medicine is a product of our culture, just like Chinese medicine is a product of the Chinese culture. And so learning these different types of medicine, we actually kind of understand what's going on in the culture and we can communicate with people from that culture. But I feel like it widens my mind. I haven't studied Mayan medicine with Mayan people. I've read a little bit about how the modern Maya practice and just studying that and looking at that, it opens my mind to how those people really like see and perceive the world. And it fascinates me that in some ways, it's actually very similar to Chinese medicine, that the, the modern Maya talk about disease in terms of hot diseases and cold diseases, just like Chinese medicine, and just like Greek medicine, which was the medicine of all of Western and Central Europe for centuries. Sometimes there's the differences which reflect that particular culture, but it's also really heartwarming for me to see the similarities. The Maya also use a species of basil that grows there. I don't know the Maya name for it, but the Spanish name is Ompac. There is a species of basil used by the modern Maya. 
in this very spiritual way. It's used for spiritual cleansing. And it's not the same way as Ayurveda uses holy basil, Mm -hmm. uh, which is also a different species of basil. And the species that Maya uses is not the Italian basil that we use for making pesto. And even though it's not the exact same thing, how do these Maya people figure out with no contact with the people of India, they're both using almost the same plant, like related species of plants for very similar things, for like uplifting and cleansing. And I think that's what I mean about like bridging the different cultures, understanding the culture better. It's about being the difference and and seeing the similarities, which makes me realize that we are just one big human family. Right. Very true. Very true. I had a conversation with a colleague of yours, and we were talking about the communications between plants and humans. And so perhaps some of these plants are inspiring us in one way or another to look at things from a similar perspective. So perhaps uh, that particular species of basil and maybe the holy basil and maybe the Italian basil, there is a communication that goes on between someone who is able to interpret this communication and sharing it with others. I don't know. That's, yeah, definitely. All right. So the next place where there is definitely a bridge is between the plants themselves and the human beings or the plants and the people. How have you experienced this in your own life? Can you share with us your own philosophy or maybe some examples of this? Yes. Yeah. When I talk about being a bridge between the people and the plants, it's not like we're really two separate beings. Mm -hmm. I mean, we are, it's not two separate worlds. Really what I'm doing is connecting people to the world they already live in. Right. It really opens people's eyes to see like, wow, there are plants all around us. Some are edible, some are medicinal, some will help me heal this problem that I've been having. But it engenders this connection between people and the natural world around them. It opens up their empathy for the natural world. And it it creates this feeling of connection. I think a modern epidemic, it's a strange times to use the word epidemic, but a modern epidemic is loneliness. Mm -hmm. And I feel that that loneliness is not just isolation from each other, that we're not living in communities and villages as much anymore, but it's also a separation from the world around us. And so when people connect with the plants in a really like visceral way by smelling them, by tasting them, by drinking them as tea or taking them as tincture, they start to go walk in the woods or even a park or even their front yard and start seeing with different eyes and realizing that we are not just alone in the world. We're not just these individual encapsulated separate beings that we're all connected. But really as as much as uh, we talk about self-sufficiency, no one can do it all alone. I mean, we depend (laughs) at the very least on all of our ancestors who brought us here. We depend on all the things that we eat and take in and all the farmers and suppliers who got it to us and all the generations before us who grew it and selected uh, specific species of plant to become broccoli or Brussels sprouts, which are the same species, just people have grown it in different ways. But I think it engenders a connection that is so much more healing to our body and our spirit 
than just taking something to heal a specific illness. Mm-hmm. And to me, I feel like that is the deepest medicine of herbal medicine. That is the deepest healing of herbal medicine is this feeling of connection, of a feeling of part of something that's more than us. So as a clinician and as a teacher, you have one category of plants that is very near and dear to your heart, and this is tonics. So I want to talk a little bit about that. What are tonics? How do they work? Why are they even important? What are their unique characteristics? And maybe you can give us a few examples of some of your favorites. Hmm. Yeah, good. So a tonic is an herb, any herb that's safe enough to take for long periods of time. And taking it, it engenders balance or nourishes the body or some part of the body in some way. Sometimes people mix up the word tonic and tincture. And a tincture is an alcohol extract. And a tonic is a name for a category of herbs. It's a thing that an herb does. Sure. There's a way of categorizing herbs into three different strengths. Okay. And I believe this comes from Chinese medicine. And then the words have been adopted by Western practitioners. But there are tonics, mm-hmm. acute herbs, and then heroic herbs. Okay. These are the Western terms. It's kind of funny because the words are a little bit different in Chinese medicine. But the words more directly translated, the tonics, they would call the superior category of herbs because they are life promoting and life engendering. They're not just waiting till you're sick. And the acute herbs are called the inferior herbs because there's things like, well, if you actually don't take care of yourself and therefore you do get sick, then you can take these things and they'll, they'll, they'll fix you. And the herbs that in Western herbalism we call heroics, in Chinese medicine, they're called poisons. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but they're still medicine. They're just really strong things that are almost guaranteed to have side effects. But when someone is really out of balance, they will save someone from dying. But they're going to be hard on the body, hard on the system. Most of Western medicine would fall into the category of poisons. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I'm not saying Western medicine is poison. I'm saying that it's this category of heroic herbs that are extremely strong medicines that do have side effects on the body and don't really bring about balance, but they stop death. They stop disease. Right. That's their purpose, at least, is to, you know, stop the disease process, Mm -hmm. stop people from dying. And some of them do that very well. But all traditional cultures, no matter what culture you go back to, this is not just Chinese medicine. This could be Ayurveda. This could be the ancient medicine of the Choctaw or Scottish people or people from Cote d'Ivoire, people all over the world, traditional medicine is mostly about promoting health and nourishing and balancing and preventing people from getting sick. And that's what tonics really do. There's actually a saying in Chinese medicine that I love, which is waiting until you're sick to start taking medicine. It's like digging a well when you're thirsty. Mm. I know. Isn't that powerful? (laughs) Yes, definitely. So talk to us about some of their unique characteristics. Yeah. So tonics can be all around tonics. Like I talked about ginseng being an adaptogen or ashwagandha. 
I tend to use ashwagandha for my clients actually more than I do ginseng. It's easier to grow, it's more common, it's less expensive. But also ashwagandha is a great one because it's, it's both somewhat calming as well as energizing. And so many of us modern people, we need that calming as, as much as we need the energizing. So that's why ashwagandha is actually one of my favorite adaptogens. Corey Pan, can you tell us what adaptogen is? Oh, sure. So adaptogen is a type of tonic. It's okay. a great type of tonic. An adaptogen has three basic characteristics. First off, it is gentle enough to be taken long-term for most people with no side effects. Okay. Second off, it brings balance into the body. So it helps the body create better balance, probably by reducing our stress response, reducing okay. stress hormones. That's not part of the definition. That's how a lot of modern herbalists think that adaptogens seem to be working. There's some new theories coming up. We'll see how they play out. And thirdly, the third thing is that they work in a non-specific way. So if someone is hungry and then they're really tired because they're hungry and they eat a peanut butter sandwich and they have more energy because they're no longer hungry, well, that's not an adaptogen because that's working in a specific way. Adaptogens help the whole body, not just one small part of the body. They help us maintain our homeostasis, meaning the overall balance of the body. Okay. Just a quick pause here to remind you that I've created a summary of five of Corey Pine's favorite tonics. We will discuss them in a minute, and you can find them in the show notes at plantloveradio.com slash 78. And now back to our conversation. So all tonics, adaptogens, and all adaptogens, tonics. No and yes. <laughs> so all adaptogens are tonics, but tonics are actually much more broad than just adaptogens. Get us talking, we'll just talk about adaptogens all day. But you can also have tonics for specific areas of the body. For example, milk thistle. Milk thistle is a great tonic for the liver. Tonics can mean a lot of different things. It's not like, oh, I have liver problems. I should take milk thistle because it's a liver tonic. You still have to figure out which tonic is best for what's going on for each individual person. Um, but take milk thistle. It's not, that, it's not that powerful at cleansing toxins out of the liver. It's not stimulating the liver and getting it to move more. It actually protects the structure of the liver. So it protects the physical liver from damage. And it also helps repair the liver that's already been damaged. So it's been used for things like cirrhosis or fatty liver to help repair some of that damage. But it's also been used for people who have been exposed to toxic substances to help protect the liver from the damage from those toxic substances, whether they're like organic chemicals or tear gas or nasty petroleum things. <laughs> and so that's really different than taking an herb like Oregon grape, which is more of an acute herb. It could be used tonically. That's a little bit confusing because I'm saying that tonic is a gentle herb. It's safe to take for long term. But sometimes we can take stronger herbs if they're indicated for a longer period of time to help deal with chronic conditions. 
So Oregon grape is more of a liver stimulant. It's actually not related to the grape plant, like the grapes that we eat or make grape jelly out of. Totally different plant, but it has fruits that look like grapes. Sometimes it's called Rocky Mountain grape, Mahonia, Berberis. The root of that plant is used as an antimicrobial, kind of an antibiotic, if you will, but it stimulates the liver. So it'll help stimulate the liver to clear more toxins. It'll stimulate bile flow, help the liver do all the things the liver needs to do more efficiently, but it's more of a liver stimulant than like a liver protector. And so I think milk thistle is more of a true liver tonic, whereas Oregon grape root would be more of a liver stimulant. That's great. Thank you. So give us a list of three to five of your favorite tonics, something that perhaps you recommend frequently or perhaps you just absolutely love. Oh, yeah. I'm really tempted to put coffee in here, but I don't think I should. <laughs> I think enough people do coffee. Okay. Some of my favorite herbal tonics, I really do like milk thistle because so many people have liver issues. Ashwagandha that I mentioned before, it's a great adaptogen. It's probably my favorite adaptogen for people living the modern American lifestyle. It doesn't necessarily mean someone who's wearing a business suit and going to an office, but just most of us in the U.S. are like probably working too hard <laughs> and getting too little and not taking enough time off. And ashwagandha is great because ashwagandha is great for the wired and tired mm -hmm. thing. You know, it's good for the wired because it helps calm us down, but it's also good for the tired, it helps nourish us. So that's probably my favorite adaptogen to recommend. Stragulus, Stragulus membranaceus is the botanical name. Wang Qi is the Chinese name. Astragalus root. It's an herb that comes from China. We have some native species that are not able to be used the same way. They're actually somewhat toxic. But that species of astragalus, the root, is an immunomodulator. Mm -hmm. We could call it an immune tonic. But the great thing about it is I like astragalus for people who have a weak immune system. I've used it in formulas for people with cancer. And I've used it in people who just tend to catch a lot of colds and I want to help them boost up their immune system. But what's fascinating is it's also a bit of an immunomodulator. You can also use it if someone has an excess immune reaction, such as allergies or an autoimmune condition. And uh, which brings up another one of my favorites, which is reishi, reishi mushroom. Mm -hmm. So I live in North Carolina southeastern United States, and we have a lot of reishi growing here right now. The mushroom that we have growing here is not the official reishi that comes from China and Japan, Ganoderma lucidum, but it is a species that grows specifically on hemlock trees. But my experience and the experience of other herbalists around here is that it could be used as a substitute. It's not an exact substitute for the traditional Chinese reishi. Reishi is the Japanese name, lingzhi, is the Chinese name. But I find it, it's an amazing immunomodulator like astragalus. Astragalus is also a chi tonic. So it can be combined with ginseng, for example, for people who are really like worn out and tired. Reishi, not so much. Less of a chi tonic, more of a blood tonic. It's more nourishing mm -hmm. and it's more calming. I've used reishi also for clients who have cancer 
and even more than astragalus for people who have autoimmune conditions, where their immune system is overactive and attacking their own body's cells. But reishi is also great for the heart. And I think about this more as the emotional or spiritual heart. It actually does have, have some effect on the physical heart as well. Mildly help balance blood sugar and is somewhat cardioprotective. But here I really mean kind of the more emotional aspect of heart. So I've used reishi mushroom for people who have insomnia from PTSD. It's great for post-traumatic stress disorder for almost anyone, but especially for people who are so triggered that they just can't even like relax their mind to sleep at night. It's traditionally used in Chinese medicine for people who do fall asleep, but then they wake up because their dreams are so active that their mind doesn't really rest when they sleep. So that's one thing I love about reishi is that it, it both is balancing for that immune response, but also balances the mind. It's very like nourishing for the mind. In Ayurveda, an herb or a substance, a food is described as sattvic. If it's something that helps us be more present, literally it means helps us perceive the true nature of reality. But it's easier for me to understand is something that helps us be calm, centered, and balanced, even when there's a lot of stuff going on around us. I have one more tonic herb, if, if I could. It's a tonic herb that most people have studied herbalism know about, but, but there might be some people listening to the show who don't know about stinging nettles. Or they know about stinging nettles, but only for that stupid thing that makes their legs hurt when they walk around in shorts. <laughs> yeah. That's their association. But nettles are one of my favorite tonic herbs and many herbalists. So I use the leaves, the root, and the seed, but the leaves are mostly what are used. And the leaves dried make it a fantastic tea that is very nourishing. It's very blood building. So it's used a lot, often combined with oat straw for women who are pregnant. So they might do like half nettles, half oat straw, because oat straw is also very nourishing, but nettles is kind of dry. And so oat straw is a little bit moistening. So nettles and oat straw, 50-50, half and half, make a really nice combination for that nourishing aspect. But what I love about nettles is it's uh, one of the highest plant sources of protein. It's got magnesium, vitamin C, manganese, could probably keep going, but iron, got a good amount of iron. And, uh, but it's building, but it's also somewhat cleansing. It's also a diuretic. So good idea not to drink a pint of nettles before setting out on a long car drive. <laughs> Okay, that's a great tip. Thank you. Some of the tonics that you have discussed, perhaps nettles and few other ones, you can see growing in the wild, right? And I know that this is one area that you really love personally. You are a wild crafter and also a bioregionalist. Can you talk to us about the importance of knowing plants that grow around you and how and when it is okay to harvest them? And what do you need to be mindful of? This is a very good question because I think wild crafting has gotten a bad rap lately. But it's not so much if wild crafting is good or bad. I think it's asking that question that you just asked. 
when is it appropriate to wildcraft and when is it not? And which plant and where? I personally love wildcrafting, but it needs to be done right and it needs to be done knowledgeably. There are resources available for people to learn how to wildcraft. I love wildcrafting for a few reasons. First off, I feel so much more connected to um, nature when I'm wildcrafting. I also feel much more connected to the individual plant. For people who have never wild harvested before, this might be a strange concept because some people think like, well, you're killing the plant, you're harvesting it. How does that make you have more compassion for the plant? But by taking the time when I go in the woods to really look at the plant and how much of it there is and what are the circumstances around it, what is the environment around the plant and making those choices about whether I can harvest or not, and then really connecting with the plant to make sure I'm harvesting the right plant in the right place at the right time, makes me feel so much more connected to that specific plant. And it makes me feel much more connected to the medicine when I give the medicine to clients. It also enables me to use a lot of plants that I might not be able to buy off the shelf. But I think the main thing for me as someone who's a little bit anti-authoritarian is just this feeling of being able to get the medicine directly from nature. I can go out and I can harvest this thing myself without having to go to a doctor or a pharmacist or even a health food store. It gives me that more direct relationship to my medicine. And so that's what I love about wildcrafting. And what I love about bioregionalism is using the plants that grow right around me. As you can tell from my list, not all those plants are bioregional. So I'm primarily bioregional. But if there's a great plant that grows in South Africa, then I'll use it. But I prefer to use a local plant. I think there's a bias against local and abundant plants. And I think it's really important to notice that. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Why is there a bias? People like to hear about things that are new or newly discovered or... Did you hear that this new medicine can uh, cure cancer? And if it's an herb or a food, it's not a new medicine. Traditional people have probably been using it for thousands of years. It's just new to us. So the, being in the, the health-related field for 30 years, I've seen a lot of fads come and go. And there's nothing wrong with noni or goji berries or maca or I don't know what the current fad is now, maybe cacao, and there's definitely nothing wrong with cacao. So it's not a matter of good and bad. I think that we need to temper our desire for the, the shiny new thing. And remember that there's a lot of stuff that's very common and abundant and growing around us that can be really amazing. But people have a resistance to just going out in the yard and digging up their dandelion or their burdock, because those are just weeds. They can't be good for anything, they're just weeds. But well, there's a reason why these weeds came over with us. People actually intentionally brought dandelion with them to the new world from Europe because they wanted to use it for medicine. They wanted to use it for food. So using things like dandelion and Japanese knotweed and even weeds like, like mimosa tree is fantastic because that way there's less competition for the native plants. But... Also, we're not going to harm the ecosystem. 
by harvesting dandelion and shepherd's purse and Japanese knotweed. And they're really powerful medicines. Yeah, I think we just need to retune ourselves from this idea of like the new thing being something out there that we need to reach out and get from some other part of the world or some other culture and turn around and look really at us and where we're at and what grows here and realize that a lot of our medicine is already right here, that we already have it in our yards, in our fields. And that's powerful medicine right there. That's awesome. Thank you for that wonderful reminder. I think it's important for people to learn about ethical wildcrafting. People need to learn how to wildcraft before they go out harvesting. Because a lot of people come with a more colonial mindset, meaning that the plants are there, so therefore they're mine. But the plants don't belong to us, they belong to nature, and it's a partnership. So I think before we go harvest from the wild, we need to establish a connection with the wild. We need to understand where that plant is, what this piece of land is about, where we're harvesting from, and what's the right way to go about doing that. Robin Walkimer wrote a great book called Braiding Sweetgrass. There's a whole chapter in there about wildcrafting. What she talks about is having right relationship. And anybody who does wildcrafting, I, I totally recommend them read that book and then learn about each individual plant you want to harvest. Is it abundant in your area? Is it abundant everywhere? Is it abundant just where you live? Really good wildcrafting is about being aware. I go out in the woods and before I harvest a single plant, I do a stand count and I make sure there's enough of that plant where I'm at to harvest it. Usually at this point, I know my area pretty well and I know what's abundant and what's not so abundant. So if I find 20 wild yam, which is not a super abundant plant here, I might still make sure there's even more of that before I go harvest, where if I found 20 black cohosh, I would think like, oh yeah, that's a pretty good amount. I can start harvesting a little bit of that. A rule of thumb is don't harvest more than one out of every four plants. But even that is a very general rule. You should really get to know each individual plant to know which ones you can harvest more of, which you can harvest more moderately. But a great idea is just start with weeds. They're not as flashy. They're not as exciting. But start with your yard. Start with the dandelion, the burdock, yellow dock, red clover, plantain. There's so many amazing medicinal plants that are just growing wild all around us. Start with those before going in the backwoods to dig up black cohosh roots. Leave that for a little bit later. <laughs> That's a great advice. Thank you. Oh, yeah. You're welcome. So we talk about a lot of different subjects today, and I wanted to ask you a question about your favorite resources. So it might be resources on wildcrafting or bioregionalism. It might be something on tonics, the connection between different cultures or different plants and humans. If you have any suggestions of books, conferences, herbalist, anything that comes to mind, any of your favorites? Oh, yeah. Yeah, if you have a conference near you, I highly recommend going to an herb conference. Not only do you get to meet other herbalists and feel like you're part of a community, but you get to hear from the people who are writing the books. And you get to hear not just 
the linear stuff they might write in books, but what is their clinical experience? Sometimes I go to classes not to hear what the subject of the class is, but I go almost to hear the tangents and their stories and their personal experience. And also you just get to meet and interact with a lot of people. So if you start getting serious about herbal medicine, go to one of these conferences. My favorites right now, I love the American Herbalist Guild Symposium. That's where we met. <laughs> also right here in, in my backyard, just outside of Asheville is the Medicines from the Earth Symposium, which happens every year in June. This year, of course, it's gonna be online. And then the International Herb Symposium, I haven't been in a long time, but that's always a great one up in Massachusetts for folks who are up in the Northeast. I'm sorry, I don't have a lot of West Coast ones for people who are listening from the West Coast. I just, I'm an East Coaster, so I tend to go to East Coast conferences. As far as books, how much time do we have left? (laughs) It's a good question. Just a couple of your favorites, maybe something to start with on any of these topics. Let's see. Okay. I'm going to give you a list, and this list might be different if you ask me the same question tomorrow. Right. (laughs) I recommend Thomas Easley and Stephen Horn wrote two books, one called Modern Herbal Medicine. It's an encyclopedia of a lot of different diseases and then holistic approaches to them, and then herbs and formulas that fit those approach. They also wrote a book called The Modern Herbal Dispensatory, which is a great medicine-making book. So those are two books. If you want to get deeper with Chinese medicine, I tend to blend Chinese medicine and Western herbalism. I tend to be use bioregional Western plants. I use wild plants of the Southeast, whether they're native or invasive, but through the lens of Chinese medicine. That tends to be my philosophy. The philosophy that I resonate with as far as looking at health and disease. And for that, I really love Thomas Avery Garin's books. He has two books, one called Western Herbs According to Traditional Chinese Medicine, and the other is just called Western Herbs in Chinese Medicine. Those are two great books I can recommend, and you'll learn more about Chinese medicine as you read them. As far as, let's see, wild edibles, I'd recommend Samuel Thayer's book. Samuel Thayer has three, four, four books now about wild plants, The Forager's Harvest, Incredible Wild Edibles, or two of them. Really goes in depth about how to wildcraft wild plants for food. Then for wildcrafting for medicine, if you live anywhere in the western third of the country, I highly recommend Michael Moore's books. Michael Moore, the herbalist, not the filmmaker. Uh, (laughs) But he wrote a book for the Desert and Canyon West, the Pacific West, and then also one for the Rocky Mountain West. And Timber Press also is a bi-regional series out there. The Mountain States, Pacific Northwest, Midwest, and uh, soon-to-be one in the Southeast. Okay. (laughs) Can you tell us about soon-to-be? Yes. So I'm not just recommending this series because I'm the author. but But it's a great accomplishment. So tell us about the book that is going to come out in a few months. So this June, June of 2021, Southeast Medicinal Plants will be arriving on bookshelves all over the country. This is my first major book that I've written. It covers 106 plants that you'll find growing wild in the Southeast, some native, some introduced, 
most of them fairly abundant. How to identify them, how to harvest them, literally how would you dig this root versus this root? And then how do you practically use that plant for medicine? And most abundant species to harvest. We don't have a lot of, let's say, blue vervain. Love blue vervain, verbena hastata. We don't have a lot of it in the Southeast. So I talk about other species you could use instead, like verbena brasiliensis, the Brazilian species of vervain. Or possibly white vervain, verbena urticafolia. But it's a little bit different. So I talk about the actual species that grow in the Southeast. And then because I'm a clinician, I really enjoyed talking about when do you use this? So instead of thinking about things, it's like, oh, I need a liver herb. Let me look through this list of liver herbs. It's like, when would you use this liver herb? When would you use yellow root versus fringe tree versus burdock and dandelion or Oregon grape root or milk thistle, as we talked about before? My hope is that there's some good clinical gems in there for you. That's wonderful. And I hope that you will come back to Plant Love Radio so we can do an interview discussing the book and all the pearls of wisdom you are sharing. So thank you for that. But I also want to talk a little bit about what you do other than writing. You mentioned earlier in this conversation that you run a school. So there is Blue Ridge School of Herbal Medicine. Can you tell us a little bit about the programs that you offer? And just in general, what is the mission of the school? What type of students you attract? What happens when someone signs up for your programs? Sure. So I started the Blue Ridge School of Herbal Medicine in 1999, so it's been running for 22 years now, and it teaches a blend of Chinese medicine and Western herbalism. And our mission is to connect people with the plants, coming back to that idea of being a bridge, getting people connected with the plants, mm -hmm. but also creating connection and community in the classroom as a big focus of ours. So we spend time outdoors learning how to identify the plants. So seeing the plants themselves, but also learning how to identify the plants. Both myself and Mark Williams teach a lot of that piece of the class. And uh, then we also talk about the materia medica, like how do, we, how do we actually use the plants? We cover anatomy, physiology, Chinese medicine, understand how the body works. But a big thing for me is getting people out in the woods. So you get to actually meet the plants. It's good to learn the intellectual stuff. But I really like the body-centered approach to herbalism. When we learn about burdock root, I think it's important for us to try burdock root. Not just like, what does the plant look like? But okay, what does the root taste like in my mouth? What does the, the tea taste like? What is the, the alcohol extract? What does the tincture taste like? And then feeling that, how does that move in my body? And that way people don't need to ask me, oh, which one is stronger, burdock or dandelion or Oregon grapefruit? I could say, okay, well, which one tastes stronger? We have three main programs. We run an Essentials of Herbalism program, which is one weekend a month. It's kind of more like a kitchen medicine piece. It's very practical, hands-on, plant walks, medicine making. And because it's one weekend a month, we get people from you know, all over the Southeast coming to that class. We also have a holistic herbalism program, which is two days a week for six months. And that's more like an herbalist training program. That's more with the anatomy and the physiology, the Chinese medicine. We even cover some Ayurveda as well. But just a chance for people to kind of go a lot deeper with 
learning the plants and how they work on the body and what they do. Then for people who want to take the next step and really be a clinician, really start seeing clients, we have an advanced clinical program. So that would be in addition to the holistic herbalism program. It's a two-year program teaching people more how to work with disease, how to assess different organs of the body in health and disease. What are the pathologies that affect those systems? What are the energetic patterns that you'll tend to see in those systems? We spent a lot of time talking about, well, how do you interact with people? How does a practitioner interact with clients? How do you ask questions? How do you hold good boundaries? Once you ask these questions, how do you put together the answers? So we spent a lot of time in that whole client-practitioner interaction because I feel that like that's just as important, maybe even more important than figuring out what herb to give someone. Maybe like being a good herbal clinician, you're like 40% herbalist, 60% life coach. (laughs) So we teach people some of those skills as well. And then I've also started doing this thing called a wild medicine internship because so many people have been wanting to do plant walks. We meet one day a week for six weeks. There's a spring session and a fall session. They're two different classes. But we go out to six different locations over six weeks and spend the whole day outside talking about the botany and identification of like, oh yeah, like what does it look like in a high ridge? What plants grow here? What are the plant communities up at 5,000 feet near the Blue Ridge Parkway? What are the plant communities and plants and medicine of like 1,500 feet, 1,200 feet down by a river? In some ways, it's, that's kind of like in real life version of my book, you know? <laughs> kind that's- of like go out and talk about the plants and how to identify them, harvest them and use them. That sounds like so much fun. Corey Pine, you spent quite a bit of time talking about different topics, and I'm so grateful to you. I have a couple of more questions as we're coming to an end of this. One is if someone wants to connect with you and learn more about your school or learn more about you, how would they be able to do that? That's question number one. And question number two will be, do you have any parting thoughts for us? Oh, yes. So if someone wants to get in touch, they could check out our website, blueridgeschool.org, blueridgeschool.org. I also have a small tincture business. My tincture business is called Pines Herbals, and the the web address is pinesherbals.org. Beautiful. Thank you. You can also look us up on Facebook or Instagram. Instagram, I couldn't fit Blue Ridge School of Herbal Medicine, so I cut the of out. It's just Blue Ridge School Herbal Medicine. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and then Pines Herbals, also on Instagram. The links to Facebook and Instagram are on the, the web page as well. Great. Thank you. And so any parting thoughts for us? Yeah. I encourage folks to go into herbal medicine with a sense of wonder. It's more than just chemicals and plants that change our physiological processes. It's about connecting to the world in a different way. It's about connecting to our own body in a different way. I find that holistic medicine and holistic herbalism has really changed the way I look at my own body. It's changed the way I look at health. And for me, that's the most powerful piece of herbal medicine. The deeper we go, we really learn how to see the world in a new way. And that's the gift I hope people can get from herbal medicine. 
Thank you. Corey Pine, thank you so much. Thank you for the wisdom, for your time, and for sharing it with us. Thank you so much for having me here today. I really enjoyed it. I love your podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today for this conversation with Corey Pine Shane. I hope you've enjoyed it. To get to all the resources and links mentioned in today's episode, please head over to plantloveradio.com slash 78. This episode is brought to you by Mountain Rose Herbs. Whether you are a budding herbalist or an established practitioner, Mountain Rose Herbs offers the highest quality organically grown herbs, spices, teas, essential oils, and botanical goods. To learn more about the company and explore their amazing collection, please head over to plantloveradio.com slash mountainroseherbs. Are you listening to Plant Love Radio for the first time? Please subscribe to the podcast to seamlessly get future episodes downloaded to your device. I'm so thrilled to introduce you to many amazing guests and topics. And of course, nothing says thank you better than sharing this show with a friend who might enjoy it and giving us a five-star rating and review. Thank you so much in advance. The music you hear in the introduction was written by a neighbor of mine, David Scholl, and is called Something About Cat. My deepest gratitude to Bill Gilligan for this opportunity to play it. Thanks again for being here today. I really appreciate you. Till the next time, thank you for loving plants and planting love.